Scripture lesson for this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. Listen now for God's Word to you. When Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the Word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So they say you should save the best for last, and I think I've done that with this sermon series. You see it there on the screen, should the church be involved in politics? Uh, I can hear the groaning already. Uh, The outspoken Baptist preacher and sociologist Tony Campolo once said that mixing the church and politics is like mixing ice cream with cow manure. Um, It doesn't do much to the cow manure, but it sure does ruin the ice cream. Um, And Tony Campolo knew a little something about the messiness of church and politics being mixed together. He was the spiritual advisor to Bill Clinton while he was president. Um, Whenever you're the guest at somebody's house, there are topics that are off limits, right? Religion and politics. And so this morning, we're going to talk about both of those. Um, I hope that you're excited. Um, (laughs) Now, I would be lying if I said I wasn't a little more nervous this morning than usual. Um, when I was planning this sermon series and thinking about the burning questions that we have, I, I seriously looked for a way out of this question. Um, wanted something that was less controversial, less problematic. Um, but the fact that I felt so much anxiety, I think, about it revealed to me that it really is a burning question for us. A question of what is the church's relationship with, uh, with politics? To say that we live in a politically divided society would be a grand understatement, right? That partisan politics is the name of the game these days. That our political affiliation, our party affiliation, is one of the most significant identifiers that we have in our society. Uh, Whether you're Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative, it's one of the ways that we um, identify ourselves. How many relationships have ended in the last several years over a difference in politics? We curate our Facebooks and social media all to receive only the opinions of people that we already agree with. We watch news that feeds us the information in a way that we want to hear. It filters it through the the lens that that we want to hear. We live in in a very politically divided society. And of course, as a pastor, I've been asked in the past to not talk about politics. Stick to the Bible, I've been told. I remember I got an email several years ago from someone not in this congregation, so don't worry, it's none of you, uh, where someone said, I come to church to feel good and I want a spiritual nugget to take home with me. I don't come to the church to talk about politics. Um, I remember when I was in seminary, one of the first things I did was I signed up to be on the pulpit supply list so that um, I could gain some experience preaching in pulpits uh, around the Princeton, New Jersey area. And I remember the very first gig that I had was from a uh, cute little church in northern New Jersey that traced its history all the way back to before the American Revolution. 
And so in this conversation I had with the pastor beforehand, uh, he made me give my word that I would not preach on politics or anything controversial. And it felt like a blood oath in some ways. Um, and I agreed. I was young and I was inexperienced, and I agreed to do that. And, and honestly, I understand why that pastor asked me to make that, that promise to him. I didn't know that congregation. No love and trust had been built between them. I also understand why uh, certain folks ask that uh, they come to church and they not hear about politics, um, that the world is a very difficult place. It's been difficult to just be a person the last three years or so, right? And so we're looking for a place that can kind of give us a break from all of the anxiety and the stress. We've had a, a pandemic that went on for two to three years, and that was even political. We've had contentious election cycles. We're, we're looking for a, a break from all of that. And the church can sometimes be a place of refuge from all of the distress that surrounds us. But the church cannot and is not only that. Uh, the church is not Noah's Ark safely floating along as the rest of the world drowns. The church is primarily the place where we are equipped for our ministry in following Jesus, that we are the caretakers of his ministry, and we are called to go back into the world, a, a ministry that always engaged with the pain and the heartache around us. It never, never ran away from it. So the church, I think, is not just a place of comfort and refuge, it's also a place that sometimes makes us a little bit uncomfortable, a place that challenges us and stretches us as we seek to follow after Jesus. And so with that being what the church is about, I think perhaps on the way to answering the question of should the church be involved in politics, the first question we can ask is, was Jesus political? And now, Whenever we have conversations like this, it's always important for us to define our terms so that we're all in the same place, understanding what we're talking about. When I and others ask the question, is the church to be political, is Jesus political, we're not asking, was Jesus a Republican or a Democrat, or was Jesus part of that sought-after group of the American electorate, the, the independent? Um, it should come as no surprise to anybody that Jesus is not and was not an American, um, Jesus does not sit anywhere within the political spectrum of American politics. When we ask, was Jesus political? Politics simply means life together. Politics deals with the structures and the systems that we inhabit in our world. And it asks questions about those systems and those structures. Is it for the common good or does it leave other people out? That's the question on the table this morning when it comes to politics and the church's role in politics. Is Jesus engaged in the life of the world that he lives in? Does he care about the systems and the structures of the world that he inhabits? And so to answer that question, we go to that first sermon in the home synagogue in Nazareth. Uh, Jesus had been away for at least six weeks, possibly more. He had gone down to the Judean wilderness to the banks of the Jordan River where he was baptized by his cousin John after which he goes on sort of a retreat by himself for 40 days, wandering around in the wilderness, fasting and praying, trying to discern God's will and God's direction for his life. That Jesus has a sense that he is God's anointed one. That's what Messiah means. But what sort of Messiah is he going to be? So he spends 40 days discerning all that, and he emerges from the wilderness ready to announce to the hometown crowd all the things that he's figured out about himself. And so he shows up back in Nazareth, and the, the town is buzzing with his arrival, and 
he shows up at the home congregation, the community that raised him, and, and I sort of wonder if the church mothers said, we used to remember when you were sitting on Mary's lap in the back pew, or um, maybe there was a, a cake from Costco downstairs that said, welcome home, Jesus, or um, maybe his artwork still hung in the education wing. But then I imagine for a lot of them, they were beaming with pride as Jesus stood up in the synagogue to announce who he was. And to do that, he opens to the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and he reads from that section that says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom for the oppressed, to announce the year of the Lord's favor, which is a reference to the jubilee found in the book of Leviticus. Every 50 years, the cancellation of debts, the returning of land back to those who had lost it. What strikes me about that first sermon of Jesus is that it's not overly spiritual. Uh, Jesus doesn't invite the congregation to an altar call, for those of you who grew up in that tradition. He doesn't plumb the depths of the mysteries of God, the ways that we pastors and theologians sometimes can do. He doesn't talk about how he's the way to heaven. He doesn't talk about how he's come to die for the sins of the world, those things that we normally associate with Jesus. What strikes me about this sermon is that in the words of my seminary preaching professor, this sermon has legs. It is connected and grounded in the world in which Jesus lives. It doesn't live and exist and, re and remain in heavenly abstraction, but it is connected deeply to the world in which Jesus lives. It is, in a lot of ways, a political sermon because it names categories of people, people who are at the very bottom of the systems and structures in which Jesus lived, the poor, the blind, the oppressed, the captive, the indebted. That Jesus' ministry from the very outset, at least in the Gospel of Luke, has political dimensions to it. It is always to bring good news to the poor, release for the captives, freedom for the oppressed, and to announce the jubilee, good news for those who are indebted. And so as Jesus emerges from this moment, this first sermon in Nazareth, we see the sort of political implications of that sermon that the central vision of Jesus' life was what he called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. If you're reading the Gospel of Matthew, it's the same thing. This realm of God's justice and love and mercy. That as Jesus emerges from this moment in Nazareth, one of the central visions that is made of his life is the table. That Jesus seems to always be sitting around the table eating with people. It's one of my favorite things about Jesus. He's always, he's always eating. But of course, in those days, it wasn't just about the sharing of the meal, that table fellowship was governed by strict social rules and customs that you only ate with people who were like you, who were part of your own social class, people who could return the favor. And you also only ate with people that you approved of because eating with somebody was your way of indicating that they were part of the group, that, they, that you approved of them, that you accepted them. And yet as we watch Jesus' life, as it unfolds, He's always sitting around the table with the wrong crowd, isn't he? Sin, So-called sinners and outcasts, the, the unrighteous, the people that people turn their noses up at, people who could never return the favor to him. He stands on the hillside uh, in Galilee with the 5,000, and he offers bread and fish to those who could never return it. Jesus, in a lot of ways, like a game of Jenga, pulls an important piece 
out of the structure of the society in which he lives. Jesus, of course, later on gets asked that question, who is my neighbor? Which is an incredibly political question, isn't it? We know that from the the debates we've had in the last several years around immigration and asylum for refugees and all of these things. Who is my neighbor? A, A religious leader asks Jesus that question. Because if somebody is his neighbor, that means he has to relate to him differently than if he was an outsider. And of course, Jesus answers that question in a very Jesus kind of way. He tells a parable, which I know drives some of you absolutely crazy. Bill's Bill's losing his mind over here. Uh, I know how much Bill loves parables. And that parable is one of his most famous, right? The parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? It's the one lying in the ditch along life's roadside. It's the despised outsider, in this case, the Samaritan. And Jesus seems to always be crossing boundaries. And boundaries are always political. Um, even in this first sermon, beyond what I read this morning, uh, Jesus, the, the hometown crowd likes the, the message Jesus has preached. They like this idea of, of good news for the poor and recovery of sight for the blind and release for the captives and all of that. But then as Jesus continues, he says, I'm going to be doing it beyond your boundary. And that's when they lose their minds. They take Jesus out of the synagogue, take him to a cliff and want to throw him over. I've preached a lot of sermons in my life. I've never preached one where someone wanted to throw me over a cliff. But that's what they want to do here. Of course, we're getting ready for the season of Lent on Wednesday, right? The 40 days journeying towards the cross and the resurrection. Let's not forget that, that, um, that final Sunday before we get to Good Friday and to Easter, Jesus has a parade into Jerusalem, which really was more than a parade. It was kind of a political counter-demonstration to Pilate's imperial domination, to the Romans' imperial domination. So Pilate marches in every year at Passover from one side of the city with his legion of soldiers, armor strapped to his chest, riding on a war horse, letting everyone know who's in charge. But then on the other side of the city comes Jesus with his ragtag group of followers, no weapons but palm branches and riding on the back of a donkey. The next day, Jesus goes to the temple in Jerusalem and he sees all of the ways that they're price gouging the the pilgrims who are there. Jews from all over the diaspora travel to Jerusalem during times like Passover to make sacrifices there. And you're not going to bring your animals with you, right? That's a hard thing to do. So you have to buy them when you get to the temple. It's sort of like when you go to the airport and you can't bring food with you. You have to pay $20 for a sandwich. That's what's happening in the temple. And Jesus stages a sort of direct action there, overthrowing the the tables and casting out the money changers. If you ever want to know what Jesus would do, leave this on the table as a possibility, this direct action in the temple. And then, of course, let's not forget the way that Jesus' life ends on a Roman cross. Um, You don't end up on a Roman cross because you're a nice guy who simply dispenses heavenly wisdom. You end up on a Roman cross because you're a threat to the establishment. That's what Romans did to those who were a threat to them. They crucified them. The chief symbol of our faith is a form of capital punishment. Let that sink in for a moment. Was Jesus political? I don't think we can avoid the fact that Jesus was political, that Jesus cared deeply for the systems and the structures, the people within the world that he lived. But he was not political in the sense that we sort of think about it. He was not political in the sense of partisanship. He wasn't Republican or Democrat. His politics was not one of power and domination. His politics 
was one of concern and care and solidarity with those who were at the very bottom of the world in which he lived, casting his lot with those who were poor or hungry or oppressed or, or captive. That was Jesus' politics. And the question is, should the church be political? I think the answer is both yes and no. Yes, in the way of following after Jesus, but no in the sense of we're not called to be partisan. We're not called to be Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative, wherever it is. We're called to follow in the way of Jesus, to be concerned with those at the very bottom of the systems and the structures that we inhabit. William Sloan Coffin, uh, the, great pre- the late preacher from uh, Riverside Church in New York City, which I think is a great preacher's name, by the way, William Sloan Coffin, he says, to show compassion for an individual without showing concern for the structures of a society that makes him an object of compassion is to be sentimental rather than loving. And our calling is always to be loving, to be concerned not only with those who are the objects of compassion, but to be concerned with the ways that they become objects of compassion in the first place. Thinking back to that first pulpit supply gig I had in seminary, that promise I made to that pastor. Uh, It happened to be that week in November of 2014. That was the week that uh, Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old boy in Ohio, was shot by police while he was playing with a toy gun. And I kept my word to that pastor, but I wish I didn't. Because the gospel calls us to address things like that, to be deeply concerned about the world in which we live and in which we inhabit. And of course, I'm aware that we're talking about this question this morning, should the church be involved in politics, on the other side of what happened at Michigan State this week. Um, I was telling Stacy this morning that I, I really don't look forward to the Sundays after mass shootings. And the fact that I have to say that indicates that we have a problem. Um, I've lost track. I've been ordained for almost six years. I've lost track of how many times I've had to address this. Um, I've actually lost track of how many times I've had to address this, even in my two years here. Um, there's at least, there's been two that have affected our community here. There's one, the one in Oxford and then now the one at Michigan State. And of course, I, I learned that uh, there were two students who, were, um, were, who survived the shooting at Michigan State who also survived other mass shootings at schools. One at Oxford, and then one who was 11 years old at Sandy Hook when that happened. Um, we got a problem in this country. We have a, a big issue, continual mass shootings. And, um, and I, I, like I said this morning, I'm grateful that our kids who were there, the kids involved in this congregation, I spent Tuesday morning contacting everyone I could think of who was at Michigan State, and um, I'm glad that they're physically okay, but there are, of course, those scars of trauma that last, that continue on. We can do better than that. And the church's calling, I think, is more than simply to offer prayers on the Sunday after an event like this. The calling of the church, I think, is to work for actual change. It's not an unreasonable thing to ask for there to be our kids to be safe, to love our kids more than we love our guns. Of course, we as a congregation have taken on the work of racial justice and uh, I think it's important for us to remember that, that race is not an intrinsic biological category of people. It is originally a political one, a way of stratifying society. And so to address race is to be inherently political. That's why we have things like we've done our cash bail writing campaign. We have our, um, 
a racial wealth gap simulation coming up. These are political categories. And speaking of political identities, I, I remember uh, sitting with someone at a congregation I was a part of years ago, and, um, and I was talking to them, debriefing with them after their vacation. They were talking about all the, the book that they had just read, and um, they said it was a pretty good book, but how disappointed they were that the main character of the book was transgender because they said, I just wanted to read something that wasn't political. I remember thinking in that moment, what's it like to have an identity that someone else considers political? That to love and support our LGBTQ plus siblings is for some a political act, and we've seen that as the news has unfolded. And of course, too, as a congregation, we've taken on addressing the climate crisis. And as Lucy was here uh, last month before our uh, youth service, which how she so eloquently said, it's not about saving the polar bears. It's about caring for real human lives, lives that are affected by the effects of climate change. And the, the image that sticks in my mind is from Hurricane Katrina uh, in 2005, almost 20 years ago now, if you can believe that. And I was in high school then. I remember watching people wading through the water, trying to get to safety. I remember thinking, well, they knew how bad the storm was. Why did they just get out? Of course, I've learned later on that people who were stuck there couldn't get out. They didn't have the means to get out. And I, 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 I met one of those folks, ironically, in the most random place, uh, at a Toyota dealership I was working at when I was a college student in, during my summer break. Um, the gentleman brought in his, his car. He was a disabled veteran. Somehow he had been displaced in New Orleans and ended up in the Chicagoland area of all places. Those are the people that we are seeking to care for. And to be political is to care for men like that. Should the church be political? The answer, of course, is always yes and no. Yes, we are called to care deeply for the world in which we inhabit. No, we are not to ever be partisan. We are called to care for the people that Jesus names in that very first sermon. The poor, the, uh, the oppressed, the captive, the blind, those who are indebted. We are called to care for all of them. And now we might debate together what the best strategy is and how we might engage with those folks that Jesus names. But that's just the work of ministry. That's just the work of discernment, listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. But might I suggest to us all that the best place for us to start is by listening to those who are poor, listening to those who are oppressed or indebted. Maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking through their voices. The church, in following after Jesus, is called to care deeply for the world in which it lives, to care not only about the individuals within it, but also the structures that create that human need in the first place. It's never about being partisan. It's always about a concern, a show of love for those that Jesus names. That our calling, whether you're Republican or Democrat, liberal, conservative, somewhere in between, or some other label altogether, is always to bring good news to the poor, release for the captives, freedom for the oppressed, and to announce the year of God's jubilee. So, church, let's get political. Thanks be to God. Amen.